uh, this morning as we begin to move through this passage and, and begin to look more about kind of what is God doing uh, in our lives and what does God want me to know more about the Christian life. And I love this section of scripture that we're going to look at today because to me it, uh, it, it brings great clarity for myself about just what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Uh, I, I can remember having a conversation with someone just a couple of years ago, and he reminded me of that this week. And he said, Ross, we, we had this conversation about being a Christian uh, and how long we've been Christians. And the comment that we shared that we both exchanged was this, I thought I would be a lot further along in my Christian walk than I am right now. That you get to these certain moments in your life and you think, well, I should be done with that. And, you know, the life should get easier. And uh, there should be some things that I don't necessarily struggle with or deal with anymore. And maybe you've thought that too. Uh, and so I want to I speak to that this morning as we look at this particular set of scripture. And, and hopefully you'll hear something that you needed to hear today. Uh, that might give you a greater confidence in what God is doing in your life and a greater confidence in Jesus. Justin did a great job last week as we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark. In Mark uh, chapter 9, uh, covering something that we call the transfiguration. And it's a moment where Jesus takes just a few of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up onto a mountain, and they have this encounter uh, and the, the glory of God is there, and the God the Father is speaking from a cloud and, and, and affirming Jesus as his son that he loves, his son that he's pleased in, and listen to him. And there's this radiance of the glory of God that they're all experiencing. And the radiance is not just coming from the cloud, but it's coming from Jesus himself. So the radiance of God, the glory of God in Jesus, and through this, you know, God-man is being seen. And, and Peter is uh, overwhelmed. The scriptures say he didn't even really know what he was talking about, but he's like, hey, should we build some shelters? And, and I can get this sense that I would be right there with Peter going like, hey, how can we stay here longer? Like it's on a mountaintop. Jesus, you're here. Like there's Moses, there's Elijah, God is speaking. Like how do we stay on the mountaintop a little bit longer? And what's interesting is this, this moment with Jesus and the disciples, it, it's got echoes and hints of an earlier moment within the life of God's people where God spoke on a mountain, Mount Sinai. And this glory cloud descended and God's voice went out again and Moses was on the mountain and there was this radiance of God's glory again and he was shining off Moses' face. And Moses descended the mountain and if you know what happens next within the story of the Exodus, Moses comes down the mountain and finds that the entire camp, all of God's people, are in incredible turmoil and chaos. What's interesting about this story in Mark 9 is Peter and James and John and Jesus have this incredible mountaintop experience. And as they descend the mountain, as they come off the mountain into the valley, there's chaos, confusion, struggle. And so I want to talk this morning, maybe share a couple ideas. And one, one is the idea of this, that, that valleys often follow mountaintop experiences. That valleys in the Christian life often follow those really amazing moments that we have, these encounters that we have with Jesus, these personal experiences, that valleys are not a part of the Christian life. They're not separate from the Christian life. And last, I want to just touch on at the end, why Jesus comes down into the valley why he left the mountain, why he descended and came into the valley. And what, what do we see? What, what, can, what can we learn? What encouragement can we get from that? So uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. It says, when they came to the other disciples, this is Jesus and Peter, James, and John. When they descended and came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. 
and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If I can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. So I want you to go into this scene, um, kind of picture it again that Jesus is coming down the mountain with the disciples and you can already see it, right? There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of turmoil happening. There's a lot going on. There's this exciting crowd uh, that are waiting on Jesus, asking lots of questions. There's the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day, uh, arguing with the disciples. So there's conflict going on, this debate happening. And then underneath that, there's this father and son in the middle of it all, looking for healing, looking for some kind of help, desperate. And it's like, hey, welcome back, Jesus. You were just up on the mountain. And now here, you know, you've, you've entered back into it. And it is, it's a mess. And it seems that everyone is confused, right? Everyone has some degree of frustration. You've got the disciples certainly frustrated and confused. They're like, why can't we drive this demon out? Like we've been part of these ministries before. We've seen these miracles. We've exercised demons, right? We've been doing that for a while, but something's happening now. Like why isn't this working? You've got the the religious leaders and the teachers of the day who are the critics of the ministry. And so surely they are kind of excited, leaning in, taking advantage of the opportunity that the disciples seem to lack authority. You know, it, it kind of reintroduces all those questions of Jesus and his legitimacy and his ministry and the disciples. Right, this is a real win for the critics, a real win for the naysayers. And so you've got the disciples frustrated. You've got the religious leaders of the day kind of pressing in. You've got this, this father and this son who are desperate. They, they've tried everything. They've been dealing with this condition for a long time, many years. And the father has already come to the disciples to say, hey, can you help? And the disciples try to, but they can't. And so like he's hanging on just barely wondering if anybody is going to receive the healing that other people have been healed. Why not me? 
Right? He's, he's clearly seeing there's been plenty of people that have been restored miraculously by the disciples, by Jesus. And so like, what about my miracle? What about my son? And Jesus is even frustrated a little bit. Like it's, it's hard not to read into this, this, this response that Jesus has that you're like, okay, is, where is he in this? What's happening with Jesus? Verse 19, he says, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you and bring the boy to me? I think these, the questions that Jesus asks are, they kind of hang out there. In other words, when will you really believe? When will you see what's going on? When will you recognize it? I think Jesus is He's, he's pointing at something more than just our limited humanity. He's not giving the people a, a, really a pass that they don't see what's going on or they don't recognize it just because they're human. But he's saying like, there's unbelief, there's resistance here. There's, there's something that you're not recognizing. And Jesus says, how long? Right? How long are we going to continue to argue how long are we going to continue to point fingers? How long are we going to choose sides and position ourselves? How long are we going to line up here? How long until these conversations change? You can hear that. I mean, this, he's, he's moved. He's grieved by what he sees. How long until we see Jesus for who he is and what he's here to do? How long until we see this father and son? You kind of wonder, you've got the disciples and the religious leaders around Jesus and they're having this overarching argument and they're kind of missing this need. There's a need right here and they're caught up in other things. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And as they did, the spirit throws the boy down. Uh, he, he starts convulsions. And Jesus says, how long has he been like this? And Jesus, it's interesting, right? Jesus knows his need. Clearly, there's a need here. You know, clearly, something needs to be done. Clearly, Jesus can do it. We know the story. Jesus is going to do it. So it's fascinating to me that Jesus stops and asks the Father for context. Asks him a little bit more about, hey, tell me some history. What's been going on? Why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't Jesus just heal him? Why is he engaging the Father in the way that he is? And I can only just wonder that Jesus is trying to, to do something than just fix the problem. Jesus is trying to connect with this father. He's trying, to, he, he's trying to touch this father's love for his son, his hope that he has. It's just hanging on by a thread right now, this sense of desperation. How long has he been like this? And the, the father says, a long time. I mean, a long time, Jesus. He's been dealing with this for a while. And I want you to hear this, that Jesus cares about how long you've been dealing with your struggles. Jesus isn't unaware, right? There's this interest in what you're dealing with, not just the problem that you have and providing the solution, but how it's affecting you, how it's creating challenges within you with the relationships around you, what, what you're dealing with, the heaviness on your heart, how long you've been desperate, how long you've carried this burden for something that you really want to see change, for the struggle that you're dealing with. Jesus is leaning in. I just want you to hear him as he addresses this father on a personal level, the father says, help us. Help us if you can. 
And what I, what's interesting about what the, what the dad says is it's not help us if you would. Like he, he senses something in Jesus that Jesus would. Like there's a goodness that he, he's already recognized. His issue right now is if you can. Like I've already come to the disciples. I've already tried everything else. I don't know where else to go. If you can help us, I hope you will. I think sometimes we, sometimes our prayers are a little bit like this when we come to God. That we present our request, we, we communicate our need, but there's something that we, we hedge a little bit when we're asking God. God, if you, know, if you can. Like this has been a situation I've been dealing with for a long time. I've prayed about this already. I've already sought you out. Like you, Lord, you know how burdened this is. You know how difficult this is. And so, you know, if you can. And so we, we kind of measure our prayers with God at times because if God doesn't come through, then we don't want to be hurt again. We don't want to be disappointed. And so you can almost kind of sense that, that hesitancy on this father to really ask and to really lean in. He's, if you can. And Jesus capitalizes on that in verse 23. He grabs that if you can phrase and he says, if you can said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Everything is possible for one who believes. It's, I would say it seems like a correction. Jesus is offering a, 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 at least a subtle or gentle rebuke. Jesus is establishing that it's, it's not about my ability, Jesus says. It's not about whether I can. It's not about my power that's, that's unknown here. It's it's the experience of God through faith, through real belief. That's what Jesus is saying. This is, it brings back into this moment where Jesus is saying, this is an unbelieving generation. And what he's saying is there's all kinds of ways that people are approaching God. There's all kinds of ways that we're trying to get things done. And often we approach God based upon our goodness, our track record, our morality, our spiritual devotions. We kind of line up and list out all of our achievements and things that kind of merit God. Would you please do something? And Jesus is saying, who here will just believe? Believe in the one true God and the Son whom he sent. Who here has just faith to approach God, not based upon what you've done, but based upon who God is? And there's this tension that Jesus is kind of pulling apart of like how we come to God, how we ask of him, how we request him to do things into our life. And Jesus is saying, this generation just doesn't understand. They don't see what I'm doing. They don't see what God is actually accomplishing. That it isn't through goodness and morality and religious effort. When we come to God like that, we miss him. But those who just believe in what God is doing through Jesus and what Jesus will accomplish for us on the cross and by his resurrection, something then, something more is opened up to us with faith, with faith like that. It's not so much whether Jesus wants to heal the boy, he does. And it's not so much whether he can heal him, he can. Jesus is kind of putting it back and saying, it's, it's faith that opens up this experience, this greater, that's better. It's what you're looking for. And the father says, I believe, right? He hears the correction. You know, it's for those who believe God can do things. I do believe, but, but almost like right behind that, he says, but help my unbelief. I, this man is caught in the middle between trust and desperation. It is, it's so mixed up and it is so beautiful. I believe, help my unbelief. He realizes that his faith is shaky at best. But for his son, 
He wants to believe, but he knows he needs help. He knows his faith is not perfect. And his statement is this mixture, again, of trust and desperation. And it's the kind of prayers that we pray at times. I love it that he's, a, he's immediately honest with God. When he says, I believe, and he just follows it up. But I, there's a gap here. There's a gap here in what I believe and what I'm feeling right now and the doubt that is there. And it's this raw faith combined with this confession that, Christ, I need more. I'm not there. I need you to do more. I'm not, I'm not coming to you, you know, kind of with my feet under me on solid ground here. I'm just, I'm coming to you with need and I need your help. And Jesus takes the boy's hand right, and he, he, he lifts him up. And that word lift up, it's the same word resurrection. And he brings this boy and he speaks into him and he talks about how his life will experience incredible freedom from this point on. He will be new, fearless, the boy is healed. I mean, that's, that's the part of the story that we are waiting for. But I just want to tell you, there's something within this interaction with Jesus coming off the mountain, with the disciples, with this challenge the Father is confessing in his own faith and belief, that I, I want to offer you this, that it reveals, that it reveals the difficulty of things. And it challenges us that about how often valleys will follow mountaintops. I can remember years of taking middle school and high school students to summer camp. And it was always the experience that we were looking forward to. Like you just knew if we could take that group away for a week, if we could unplug, if we could worship, if we could hear God's word, if we could be in community for that kind of extended amount of time. What always happened is we saw teenagers giving their life to Christ. We saw teenagers experiencing worship and gratitude and praise almost in a euphoric way. And it was, it was that kid whose mother kind of signed him up, made him come, that he was the one that was like, hey, could we just could we stay here longer? Do we have to go back? Like, let's just do this. Like, let's, let's do this for another week. Let's not go back. But as we began to make our way back and began to kind of turn our sights towards returning home, like you could just feel the excitement, the sense of hope and the, you know, that life was going to be different now. That these teenagers were going to go back to their homes, back to their schools, back to their friends, and it was going to be different. That the temptations that they had faced earlier, they were going to be easier now. Now that they'd experienced God on the mountaintop, now that they'd had this week of worship and this week of time, like they knew they were going to go back and life was just going to kind of line up for them. And there was part of us as student leaders at the time that we didn't want to quench that enthusiasm, but we were just like, hey, you need to get ready. Like this was a mountaintop experience and it was wonderful, but there are things that you are going to deal with when you get back home, when you get in the valley and those things have not changed yet. You've changed, but those things are still in place. And so you're always kind of managing this tension that we feel as Christians between these experiences that we're having with God and kind of the places that we're go to that have yet to experience that. And these mountaintop experiences give us this insight. You know, you... You see the disciples and their inability to cast out this demon. They have been with Jesus now for a long period of time. They've been part of the ministry. They've been part of the power, a part of the miracles, part of the healings. They've seen all of that. And now they've got one and they cannot figure out what to do. They just, they just bump up against it. And this inability for the disciples to navigate the situation this far into their time with Jesus reminds me of what N.T. Wright began to comment about the Christian life. He says this, 
Because we have this perception that the longer we walk with Jesus, the easier life should get. That over time, things will just begin to line up and to fall into place. But this passage teaches us the very opposite. That you have something going on here. That what the disciples were encountering was there was a greater demand upon them in this situation than there was before. That the tasks, listen, that the tasks for you in your life with Christ will become greater. They will require more courage, more faith, more energy than they did before. I just want you to kind of hold on to that because that might be what you need to hear today. Because to understand where you are in your life with Christ, you may be there you may realize that you need something more than what you have right now. That the place that you're in right now is requiring more courage than you first thought. And you've been walking with Christ 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but there are some doubts, some desperation that is creeping in and and you're stumped. Can I give you permission to be stumped? You have permission to be stumped. To not know what to do next. You have permission to doubt. You have permission to come up against your limitations. You have permission. Because it's it's those moments where you're at the end of yourself where you're out of ideas, where you don't know what's going to happen next, that's the moments where real faith is born, where real belief is changed over from something that was just convenient, that you used to hopefully kind of lay on top of problems and issues in your life, to something deeper that Jesus is looking for in you and in me. The disciples, right, they were unable to help this father and son I don't know what they were doing. Maybe they were kind of leaning into their strengths. Maybe they were relying upon their position as disciples or or, or previous achievements. But what's interesting about this situation is it gets worse before it gets better. Everybody's hurt. Everybody's confused. Everybody is stirred up. And the father brings his son to Jesus, his most precious possession, lays him before Jesus. And through Jesus' encounter with the boy, the boy falls to the ground rigid and everybody thinks he's dead. How long did that moment last? Where it looked like it just got worse. He's he's before Jesus and everybody thinks he's a corpse. I don't know how long that moment needs to last for a father or for a mother to feel utter despair, to be completely undone. Thank goodness in our story, it didn't last that long for this father. But maybe you're there. Maybe you're in this place where everything that you've done up to this point and presenting it to Jesus has actually, it looks worse than it did. 
And that tension of our fragileness, that tension of our temporariness, right, where we, we just don't have anything to offer to the situation, that's the moment where we, we say, hang in there, hang on. The most hopeful people in this entire group are Peter, James, and John. They just came off the mountaintop. They just saw who Jesus was. They just saw the radiance. They just saw the glory. Like they're there. And if you've seen Jesus in the moment, if you've had that mountaintop experience, like it allows you to stay in that moment of the valley where things are dark, where things are confusing and to not give up. Jesus is making it clear that something more is going to happen here. And the faith that's going to be expressed here is faith that's it's you and me in our weakness, trusting God in his promises. Faith is this moment where you and I bump into our own limitations, but it leads us to the one that's unlimited. We find that faith is that gap that we live within between not really understanding all of what's going on, but trusting in the character of God. That's the faith that Jesus is looking for in your life and my life. And that's the kind of faith that opens up heaven to us in ways that we could never explain or predict. Jesus is making it clear in this moment where this father is saying, I believe, but I'm struggling. I believe, but it's shaky. What he's saying is, it's not so much the depth of your faith, it's the direction of your faith. It's not so much the quantity of your faith, but it's the object of your faith. It doesn't matter how much you have as long as it's in the right place. If you're putting it on Jesus, it's the right place. Even if it's as small as a mustard seed. That faith that faith will change things. That, that faith will alter things. What we, what we bring, we don't bring our power. We don't bring our abilities. We don't bring our achievement. We don't bring our goodness. What you and I contribute to this dynamic with God of faith and belief is we bring a surrendered heart. The depth of your surrender is what you contribute. How abandoned are you are to him? Is he on the throne of your heart and life? God is, God is infinite. And he has chosen to reveal himself through his word and through Christ and to give us an experience of him, and, but, but not in full. So even when you think about who God is and what you know of God, his majesty, it's, it's greater than you think. His, his goodness, it's more good than you have in mind. His, his wrath is uh, far more terrifying. His grace is far more profound. Like you, the, the amount that you understand. And so God will always be a mystery to us in this life. In part, God will always be a mystery to us. And so I believe, help my unbelief. It's this simple and yet key statement of this man saying, I believe it's the height of heights and help me in my unbelief. It's the strength of his struggle at the same time. It's this place where he's, he's in the middle. And Christians who do not understand this tension of I believe, help my unbelief, may not really be Christians. If you don't know that tension, you just may be young in your faith. Listen, a few more years, a few more struggles, a few more heartaches, a few more valleys, and it's the prayer. It's the right prayer. I believe, help me. Help me, Jesus. We feel it in our gut. The Bible reveals God to us as God wants us to know him. And as it provides answers, it provides questions as well. Let me show you what I read this week. It says the Bible gives everything we need 
but not every answer. All the necessary truth, but plenty of room to wonder. Doubt isn't sin, and asking questions can actually strengthen faith. Trust in God stems from understanding his character, not his reasons. Trust in God extends this from knowing his character, not his reasons. It's so critical for us to know the character of this God that we worship, that we love, that has come to us, to know his character, to know his countenance, to know his disposition to us. Do you believe? Belief. This is what Jesus is looking for. This is what Hebrews 11 reminds us too, that it's impossible without faith, belief, real belief to please God, to believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him, to have faith, to pursue him, to look to him in all situations. If you come to God to seek blessing because you've been good, if you come to God to seek blessing because of your resume or because of your strengths, then really you're coming to God in faith in you. But when you come without faith in you, but faith in Jesus, heaven opens up. It's not coming to God with a good record, but it's believing that in Christ you've been given a good record. I don't have faith. I don't have what it takes, but help me. Accept me. Accept me for, not for what I am, but for who you are. That's this, that's the beauty of what Jesus is offering this man and what he's offering for us in this story. And I think it's what Jesus highlights even in, a, in, a, in, a, in an indirect way with the disciples is the disciples get away and they're like, well, why couldn't we cast out that demon? They pulled Jesus aside and said, like, we've been part of this. We've, we've cast out many. We've driven out many demons before. Why couldn't we cast this one out? And what's interesting is they tried to cast out a demon without praying. They tried to seek a miracle. They tried to see some expression of God's presence and power without being dependent upon God, which is what prayer is. So it's, it's not your position, right? It's not your holiness that accesses heaven to you. It's your helplessness. It's your need. The disciples are working hard to uh, accomplish something based upon their position, their status, their achievements, right? But the one person in the whole story who's experiencing the miraculous work and power of God is the one who is most struggling, most uh, hard-hearted, uh, most, most wrecked. It's this father, and he's the one. I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, pray. You get to those spots where you don't know what to do. You get to those spots where you're stumped. Lean in to Jesus into your contact with him. Let your weak faith cling to a mighty God. If you're stumped right now, if you're stuck, if you feel mired, pray. It's, it's all back to your dependency on Christ not your strengths, not your gifts, not your achievements, not your successes. God responds to our helpless need, to our need for him, to our inadequacy. That's the moment where real faith all of a sudden it's no longer about me, but it's about you. That's the real belief that Jesus is looking for in our generation and mine and yours. These valley moments, they follow the mountaintops. I think to give us another chance to be humble to give us another opportunity to be dependent, to not take some experience that we had at one point in our life and kind of run off and make something out of it for ourselves. 
but to end up there again and again at the feet of Jesus. That's where we need to be. Why did Jesus descend into the valley? Why did he do all of this? He tells the disciples in John chapter 16, I've told you these things that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But don't lose heart. I have overcome the world. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come off the mountain and walk into the valley? And I would tell you this, Jesus came off the mountain to walk in the valley so that you would not be alone in the valley and could one day be with him on the mountain. Jesus leaves the light and glory of heaven and the mountaintop and descends into our darkness and helplessness so that darkness will not be the end of us. That there is a moment for every believer where the light and life of the resurrection comes and Jesus will take you by the hand and will lift you up into something better, renewed, remade, reborn, and to be with him forever. And there is a day coming where every tear, where every pain will be wiped away and we will actually live within the light of the radiance of Jesus himself. We won't even need the sun. We will bask in his glory and be with him forever. That's what's coming. That's what Jesus is accomplishing for us. And that's what we hold on to, that things are truly going to be different. Jesus comes down the mountain and walks in our valley so that we don't lose heart, that we don't give up, that we might have a chance to experience real faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for receiving us through a faith that does not have to be perfect. Thank you that you are not moved by our achievements, by if we have it all together, but by our faith in you, Jesus, in who you are and what you've done. Let us confess again that through God, all things are possible. God, let those possibilities begin with our own hearts this morning. That if we are really going to come and really going to seek you, to present our requests, our needs before you, to ask for your help, that God, you help us to truly believe, to surrender, to give our lives and our hearts to you. God, let that be the greatest expression of a believing generation is one that is completely surrendered and deeply given to you. God, would you draw us to that important transformational work? Would you lead us, empower us by your spirit? Let our lives come before you. We need more of you. Let us give ourselves to you wholeheartedly. God, today could be the day where it's not just the things in our lives that need to be fixed or changed, but God, maybe today's the day where our hearts get changed, where we get renewed, believing that you really can do anything in us. Let our faith be real and true, not trying to come to you in our strengths or our achievements, but in our need. Help us, Jesus. Help us to believe deeply. We ask by your word and by your spirit, we might leave here with more faith. That we are needy. 
We need help. And in that place of need and limitations, that we would believe that you are the one who can meet those needs, that you are our help, our ever-present help in times of trouble. We pray this. We worship you. Let our heart have a chance to express this, to confess this through what we're about to sing, that Jesus, you are the one we need.